Okay, so last week we did not get to chapter 17 and 18. Um, we were having such good discussion that we just didn't get to um, the end of what we wanted to look at. Obviously, this is um, we're about to finish up the first half of Exodus, and we're going to intro the second half of Exodus today as well. Um, so we're just going to jump into chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 first, and then we'll go... From there, so if you or if you have your Bible or you have the Bible app, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 17, and we'll look at verses 1 through 7. At the Lord's command, the people of Israel left the Sin Desert and moved from place to place. Eventually, they came to Rephidim, where there was no water to be found there. So once more, the people grumbled and complained to Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet! Moses replied, why are you arguing with me, and why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to complain. Why did you ever take us out of Egypt? Why did you bring us here? We, our children, and our livestock will all die. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord, what should I do with these people? They're about to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, take your shepherd's staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile. Then call some of the leaders of Israel and walk on ahead of the people. I will meet you by the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock and water will come pouring out. Then the people will be able to drink. Moses did just as he was told, and as the leaders looked on, water gushed out. Moses named the place Massa, the place of testing, and Meribah, the place of arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord going to take care of us or not? All right, so what problem do we have once again? The Israelites think they're going to die of thirst now. Yep, again, once again, here we are. We're wandering, and we don't have water, right? People being people. Mm-hmm, yep. Um, God is going to give Moses some very um, explicit instructions. What does he tell him to do? To strike the rock. He also tells him to bring who who with him? Mm, the leaders of the elders of Israel. Why do you think he asks he tells him to bring them with him? Maybe to witness. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Like, if they had just, you know, if Moses had gone off by himself and done this, right, and then the Israelites came upon it, they could just think, oh, well, we just came across this water, right? But Moses wants to make sure that the, that the leaders of Israel know that this is God's provision, that God has provided, that this water is going to come out of this rock. Um, We're... Oh, We're also seeing a multiplication uh, here. We're going to see it a little bit um, in uh, chapter 18. Uh, but it's no longer going to be God and Moses leading, uh, leading the people. We're going to bring Joshua into the mix. Uh, we've now got the elders involved. So I think it's also a form of trust building uh, with God and his people to say, you guys aren't the only ones, Moses and Aaron, y'all aren't the only ones who are going to experience this or communicate to the people. We've got to multiply out the leaders who are invested and, um, uh, and get more people involved because there's millions of people. Um, you know, one or two people are not always going to uh, sway a crowd necessarily. So um, I think God is also building, not building a case necessarily, but 
uh, but helping the people to get a solid foundation for what's going to happen in the future, especially as they go into the wilderness for a long, long time. Um, we have two names that Moses gives to this place. What are they? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, sorry. No, it's okay. You're good. But it's not, they come up again in, in the New Testament, too. Yeah, they do. Um, we actually have um, in 1 Corinthians, and we'll go to that in just a second, but did, in the footnote of your Bible, does it tell you what these names mean? I know mine says, kind of gives what they mean, uh, my version. Testing and quarreling. Um, I think that is a theme that we continue <laughs> to see, right? Testing and quarreling. Also, I love Moses' response um, when he says, quiet, why are you arguing with me? And why are you testing the Lord? Um, can I use that with our children when <laughs> they want to argue with us? Why are you Please. arguing with me? And why are you testing the Lord? Uh, <laughs> um, so we do see this, you know, you can tell Moses is getting frustrated, right? Like, He's like, I'm going to name this place testing and arguing. Like, I'm going to give this a place, uh, this name a place, instead of some type of, like, God's provision, right? Um, you can tell that he's really frustrated. Um, we are going to see Moses rename another place after in the next part of chapter 17, and he does give God honor through the naming of that place. Um, but I do want us to look at, um, oh, I think I lost it. Hang on. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 10, one through four. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, what happened to our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. God guided all of them by sending a cloud that moved along ahead of them, and he brought them all safely through the waters of the sea on dry ground. As followers of Moses, they were all baptized in the cloud and the sea, and all of them ate the same miraculous food, and all of them drank the same miraculous water. This is the part that I want you to focus on. For they all drank from the miraculous rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. So again, in the New Testament, we're hearkening back to this story of water coming from the rock, and we know that Jesus is often referred to as what? Living water. Yeah, so we can always make these ties between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right, let's look at um, the last half of Exodus 17, so 8 through 16. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek came to fight against them. Moses commanded Joshua, call the Israelites to arms and fight the army of Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded. He led his men out to fight the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff with his hands, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites gained the upper hand. Moses' arms finally became too tired to hold up the staff any longer, so Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side, holding up his hands until sunset. As a result, Joshua and his troops were able to crush the army of Amalek. Then the Lord instructed Moses, Write this down as a permanent record and announce it to Joshua. I will blot out every trace of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, They have dared to raise their fist against the Lord's throne, so now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. 
Okay, so the history nerd in me wanted to know a little bit more about the MLX and what I found actually ties in a lot with what I teach with medieval history and that the Amaleks were Bedouin warriors. Um, and so Bedouin warriors come from the Arabian Peninsula. They also go into Northern Africa um, and they are nomadic. So they're nomadic people that tend animals and they are um, very much so trained from an early age how to fight and fight on either horseback or camelback. Um, they are very skilled with bow and arrow, and not only that, but also with swords, right? Um, they fight for their land and for water resources. So kind of one of the questions is, why were the Amaleks even wanting to fight with Israel? Well, there's one, there is a family relationship, that a dynamic that's going on here, but also here is a whole you know, nation of people that are coming through this land and are going to take part in the resources of this land. And the Emeleks are trying, they know that there are very few water resources and they know that there's very few good resources to grow and raise animals and, you know, provide for your families. And so they are trying to protect that in a lot of ways. But also the interesting part is that the Amaleks are kind of cousins to the Israelites because they descend from Esau's line. So with Jacob and Esau, Esau, these are his grandchildren and the generations that follow. Um, so we have this very interesting uh, relationship here. So uh, when we look at what is going on, so the question of why is it that they're wanting to fight against Israel? Well, one, we've got resources, but two, we might also have some familial kind of, you know, grumbling going on, going down generation to generation between these people. Um, also interesting fun fact, um, the Romans apparently descend from Esau's line as well, so later on down the road. Um, I thought that was really interesting to think about. Um, all right, so um, in Deuteronomy, we get a little bit more insight into this story and about why, why God would like blot them from the face of the earth, because they fight a lot of people along the way. But in Deuteronomy, um, it's in uh, 25, 17 through 18. Um, do you have that chart? I do now. Okay, can you read it, please? Uh, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind, and they had no fear of God. You ever watch those, like, National Geographic shows where the lion, like, picks off the weak animals? That's what the Amalekites did. They came in from behind and attacked the weakest and most vulnerable. That's why God just decided to wipe them off the face of the earth. And like historians say, there is no trace of that tribe left. There are no descendants of the Amaleks left. So God held true to his promise with this, that, there, that they would no longer exist. And I think that speaks to God's character, that he takes care of the weak and the vulnerable that the least of these are still important to him, that he was willing to fight for them. Because as we know, like, that in war, like, you don't, you're not supposed to go after the weak and the vulnerable, right? People do, and today we call it a war crime, right? So again, I think, again, we're seeing God's character play out and who he prioritizes and who he feels, you know, justice for. Uh, I know we have some new faces in here, so if 
if you as a nation are trying to establish your reputation in the world, there are uh, no telephones, no TVs, <laughs> no massive broadcast. There's no way uh, for news to spread like that. How would you assert your power uh, or your authority or your dominance in this time? You'd wipe out a nation. Absolutely. Uh, you know, this is this is one of those things that it could take months or years for uh, news to get around. You know, when somebody is traveling through an area and they go, "What happened to this city? What happened to these people that I that I saw just you know a couple of years ago?" Uh, and then somebody goes, "Oh, you didn't hear? There's this new nation. Uh, there's this new God on the scene." And uh, he's he's taking care of business. So we don't just see it in the way that God delivers the Israelites from Egypt, who is the superpower of the time, we're going to see it along the way where God just says, I'm going to take care of this so that people know I mean business. Mm -hmm. That's one of the one of the very few ways for God to let the world know that he's not messing around uh, and that he is not to be messed with. Now, people are not going to heed that uh, over time because we're going to have the Philistines come along. Uh, we're going to have several other nations, uh, Babylon, that are going to try to take God on. Uh, and he's already establishing early on, like, hey, I can wipe, I can wipe nations out just mm -hmm. when by somebody holding up their hands in a battle. Yeah. Um, so um, to, to us, it seems like, well, why would God do that? This is one of the only ways that the world is going to find out who God is uh, and what the nation of what he's going to do for the nation of Israel and even through uh, the nation of Israel. Well, and we have to remember, too, this is this is part of um, the the blessing that God gave to Abraham generations and generations and generations mm -hmm. before. Um, people that will bless you will be blessed and people that will curse you will be cursed. Um, and you know, you you kind of pointed to this nuance, but this isn't just about the nation of Israel establishing dominance. A nation had a God, and so it's God who is establish, establishing dominance over mm -hmm. the other gods. So the Amaleks would have had their own um, gods. Uh, the Egyptians, of course, had multiple gods, and Pharaoh was the representation of, of um, one of the highest ones. So this, this isn't nation against nation. Um, the book of Exodus is taking for granted that there are multiple gods, and yeah. it's showing who is the true God, who is yeah. the real God, and what kind of God is this? Um, and to your point, this is a God who uh, cares about the weak and um, hears the cries of God's yep. people. This is not the last time that you'll see that play out in history as well, this idea of gods when when a group of people are conquered, they, they also have a mass conversion to a different religion. A lot of times, um, as we see the conquistadors come over into the Americas and conquer the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Incas, who did have polytheistic religion, so multiple deities, as they are conquered, it's not just like, oh, we were weak and we weren't able to stand up against guns and disease and all of these things. It was our gods are not the true God. That's why you see such a heavy um, presence of, of Catholicism in uh, Central and South America, is because a lot of people begin to convert to Catholicism and Christianity as the they were conquered. So again, it's this idea of not only is it just people against people, it's gods against gods in a lot of way. And, and that goes back to the context in which the book of Exodus was written, which is while the Israelites are in captivity. So it's a reminder of who you are and who your identity is mm -hmm. and who your God is in the midst of this Babylonian empire, in the midst of these people that um, your, your, your children and your daughters are marrying 
um, don't forget who your God is and don't forget what your story is mm-hmm. and where you came from. Yeah. Um, would we say that this um, battle is won uh, through humans or through uh, the divine? Yeah, through the divine. Um, Moses is given instructions by God to hold up his staff, and as long as he's holding his staff up, the Israelites, Joshua and the Israelites, will be victorious, right? Um, and of course, he's going to get tired. Um, I thought about this from my perspective right now. So I have like a small tear in my shoulder. Um, thank you, softball um, coaching. Um, so I have a small tear in my shoulder right now. And just doing my hair is exhausting. Like just to have my arm like this and to try and do my hair, like that's really tiring for me. And I'm thinking about Moses. And like he's having to hold his arms up through an entire battle. There's no way that I could do that, even if I was healthy, right? And Moses, we know, is getting to be older. Like he, his, he's not, you know, this young, you know, man. And so what we see is another part of Moses' character because what is he going to allow to happen? Well, he has assistance. Yeah. To do it. He asks for, like, he lets people help him. That's kind of really what we see in, um, in chapters um, going into chapter 18 as well. It's, so from the end of 17 going into 18, we're going to see Moses really let other people start to help him. Um, and he has had help all along, but I think, again, we are seeing someone who is the leader of Israel at this time, but he is allowing other people to hold him up and to give him help when he doesn't have the strength to continue on. Mm-hmm. Um, He's going to give, um, he's going to build an altar um, to thank the Lord. And what does he call it? It's in chapter eight. The Lord is my banner. What does that mean to have a banner? People can recognize who you are uh, if they come across you. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, why, why did, you know, medieval families have a crest, right? And they put it on everything. Is, is this the same, is Ebenezer the same word as this? No, it's mm-hmm. not. What does Ebenezer mean? Because it's something like, the Lord is my help. Rock of hope. Yeah. Rock yeah. of hope. Yeah. So, um, okay. All right. So, I just, I get this confused with those. Yes. Yeah, so, Ezer is the rock. And so, Ebenezer is rock. But the, the first part of it is different. Okay. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, are you ready for chapter 18? Yes. Okay. Uh, And I think I said this last week. Uh, If you would like a master class view into what full-time ministry is like, this is pretty close. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I say that knowing everything that's about to be covered in this chapter. Uh, But, you know, Haley and I also spent about a decade in uh, in full-time ministry. And as I was reading through this, I was like, how much of this sounds familiar? Two of the uh, two of the things I remember, and you'll you'll kind of see Moses having to deal with uh, people. They're hungry, they're tired, they're confused, they're lost. They need a leader, uh, but Moses also needs other leaders to come alongside him and help with what is about to happen and what is what is currently happening. But um, I remember uh, several uh, several little stories um, of people writing into the office, coming coming into the office and just complaining about. Uh, various things. My favorite one was uh, somebody wrote in one time or left a voicemail. I can't remember which one. And they said, um, hey, just so you know, the communion juice is too cold. Because that needed to be said, right? Um, uh, another another man came like in. Uh, yeah. Uh, another man came in and tried to um, uh, tried to tell us that his wife got sick because the air was too cold in the in the sanctuary. 
And I said, what would you like us to do? Uh, I have no control over the air. It's all automatic and stuff. And uh, he was like, well, let me show you where we're sitting. And he happened to be sitting right where two vents came down. I was like, you know, you, you could just move to a different place. I was like, why would I do that? Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, just some of, the, some of the great things that ministers get to deal with on a, uh, on a regular basis. So, all right. a little precursor. Okay, so let's look at verses 1 through 12. Word soon reached Jethro, the priest of Midian and Moses' father-in-law, about all the wonderful things God had done for Moses and his people, the Israelites. He had heard about how the Lord had brought them safely out of Egypt. Sometime before this, Moses had sent his wife Zephorah and his two sons to live with Jethro, his father-in-law. The name of Moses' firstborn son was Gershom, for Moses had said when, he, uh, when the boy was born, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. The name of his second son was Eleazar, for Moses had said at his birth, The God of my fathers was my helper. He delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro now came to visit Moses, and he brought Moses' wife and two sons with him. They arrived while Moses and the people were camped near the mountain of God. Moses was told, Jethro, your father-in-law has come to visit you. Your wife and your two sons are with him. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed to him respectfully and greeted him warmly. They asked about each other's health and then went to Moses' tent to talk further. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to rescue Israel from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He also told him about the problems they had faced along the way and how the Lord had delivered his people from all their troubles. Jethro was delighted when he heard about all that the Lord had done for Israel as he brought them out of Egypt. Praise be to the Lord, Jethro said, for he has saved you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. He has rescued Israel from the power of Egypt. I know now that the Lord is greater than all other gods because his people have escaped from the proud and cruel Egyptians. Then Jethro presented a burnt offering and gave sacrifices to God. As Jethro was doing this, Aaron and the leaders of Israel came out to meet him. They all joined him in a sacrificial meal in God's presence. I just love this story. Like, I think it's just, like, when you think about, like, why was this included, you know? Um, I think that this relationship is very unique. Um, because, you know, in society, a lot of times we talk about, like, oh, you know, in-laws and blah, blah, blah. Like, I have a great, luckily, I have a great relationship with my in-laws, and I love them very, very much. I'm not just saying that because my husband's sitting here. Um, They're awesome. They are. <laughs> and and my some of my friends are like, oh, you won the in-law lottery. Like, you have a great relationship with them. Um, and I think that this story is meant to be a reminder of how life should be when you have people and it doesn't have to be someone you're related to or your in-laws but someone that is older than you that that celebrates when you celebrate mm -hmm. um, and that wants to hear of the good things that are going on in your life um, I also think that there's a stark contrast between um, the kind of the conversion that we see with Jethro compared to what we've talked about so far of you know God's message of, you know, I am the one true God through kind of destruction and, and the annihilation of people um, and then, you know, blessing those who bless you and cursing those who curse you. And here's Jethro blessing Moses and having this, like, hearing all of the great and powerful things that God has done and coming to the conclusion that God is the true God. Well, and you have to think, too, the Amalekites... This probably wasn't the first time they had come upon a group of people and killed off their old and sick and children that were bringing up the rear. Mm -hmm. um, they, they probably did this a lot. And so 
as news was spreading, you know, we read this and we think, oh, this is terrible. But the people would have heard this and said, oh, we can travel now safely, not have to worry about uh, our children and our elderly people or sick people. And um, it, it would have been good news to them um, because sometimes bad news for the oppressor is good news for the oppressed. Um, and so, you know, word is getting around and we read it and we think, gosh, this sounds so, so harsh. But as Jethro is showing us, the people are saying, wow, this God is amazing. This God is good. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sidebar, I also won the in-law lottery. Uh, her family <laughs> her family is wonderful, and uh, I've, I've experienced much of what Moses did, uh, you know, with Jethro. And I would say to, to anybody, whether it's your father-in-law or uh, your, um, uh, you know, your uncle or somebody at work, somebody who's ahead of you, uh, maybe a couple of life phases that... Uh, can invest in you, can uh, encourage you, um, somebody who can just buy you coffee every now and then. I love that. I love that little details like, hey, Jethro just throws a throws a dinner party for mm-hmm. uh, for Moses to be like, hey, can we celebrate this? Can we stop for just a moment in the middle of the desert uh, and give thanks, but also invite other people into this uh, into this moment? I think that's so important for us to always have somebody in front of you and also somebody behind you. Uh, in a life phase, uh, somebody who's investing in you and somebody you can invest in uh, as well. Those those two things are so important. This may or may not be related, but uh, I noticed in verse 2 that he sent his wife away. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have any indication? Is that for her protection? Or? Yeah, so from what we understand, it's actually during the time that they're in Israel. So we've yeah. got all the plagues and everything going on, and he sends her um, to go be with her father, to kind of as a, as a protective thing, like, hey, there's some stuff about to go down, like, like just you know stay there yeah and i think there's there's a strategic side of that too um you know as a leader uh one of the most vulnerable parts of your life is your family and Mm -hmm. so um to to remove some of the uh vulnerability for moses i think is also kind of important to say my family is gone they are not in danger they are not going to be a part of any kind of uh, hostage negotiation necessarily, but uh, any kind of yeah, yeah. retaliation and harm. Uh, I think there's a there's a practical side of that too. Uh, to go, I I don't want to put you at risk because yeah. of the risks that I am taking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, let's uh, look at the end of this chapter. The next day, Moses sat as usual to hear the people's complaints against each other. They were lined up in front of him from morning till evening. That's a lot of people, by the way from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, why are you trying to do all of this alone? The people have been standing here all day to get your help. Moses replied, well, the people come to me to seek God's guidance. When an argument arises, I am the one who settles the case. I inform the people of God's decisions and teach them his laws and instructions. This is not good, his father-in-law exclaimed. You're going to wear yourself out. And the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Now, let me give you a word of advice, and may God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representative before God, bringing him their questions to be decided. You should tell them God's decisions, teach them them God's laws and instructions, and show them how to conduct their lives. But find some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as judges over groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10. These men can serve the people, resolving all the ordinary cases. Anything that is too important or too complicated can be brought to you. But they can take care of the smaller matters themselves. 
They will help you carry the load, making the task easier for you. If you follow this advice, and if God directs you to do so, then you will be able to endure the pressures, and all these people will go home in peace. Moses listened to his father-in-law's advice and followed his suggestions. He chose capable men from all over Israel and made them judges over the people. They were put in charge of groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10. These men were constantly available to administer justice. They brought the hard cases to Moses, but they judged the smaller matters themselves. Soon after this, Moses said goodbye to his father-in-law, who returned to his own land. Yep. <laughs> it's uh, pretty straightforward, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's also so uh, so timely that not only does Jethro show up, he speaks a couple of things to uh, to Moses. Number one, you're about to burn yourself out. Mm-hmm. You can't handle millions and millions and millions of problems all by yourself. Uh, number two, uh, we've got to get some more people involved because you're not the only one uh, who has wisdom here. You're not the only one who could be a representative of the people. And though we may not necessarily call these people elders necessarily, um, I think there's a functional part of this role uh, to divide uh, divide people up into different um, uh, different groups, uh, different numbers of people. I mean, they're not uh, they're not necessarily you know handling millions of people, but they've got they've got a crowd. Uh, part of me thinks this is probably uh, tribal or family uh, family in nature. So uh, you know, tribal Levi, you've got your people. Benjamin, you've got your people. That's um, uh, I mean, that's more more than likely how it was uh, divided up. But um, you know, Moses is still there to handle all the all the stuff. It's one of the first like. Not judicial systems necessarily, but um, but certainly a uh, a system of yeah. uh, handling disputes. Well, um, we're starting to move. Israel's starting really to move towards more of a government system. Like, in, I mean, yeah, obviously they're judging issues that come along, but kind of um, as we progress through history, we see um, you know local government, central government. Um, you know, the kind of this idea of you have this you know one person who's kind of this overarching figure. Um, and then people underneath them. So if you think about the feudal system that comes about in Europe, you have a monarch and then you have nobles and the nobles are protecting plots of land and then you have the knights underneath them who are helping to protect smaller parts of the nobles' land and then you have you know, the peasants and serfs underneath them that are working on all the land, right? So you kind of have this tiered system because one person can't tend to it all. Um, if we look at... Um, the lands that the Israelites are going to inhabit, one person alone could not protect all of that. They have to have help. They have to have people that they trust and they rely on. Um, and whether or not there was some oath of loyalty made, or and I'm sure there was some type of oath, of, uh, oath to uphold God's laws that these men had to make you know, before Moses and before God, before they were allowed to be in these positions that they would uphold justice, that they would you know, govern rightly, um, that they wouldn't accept bribes. Like they made that very clear, like make sure they don't accept bribes. Don't do that, that's not good, mm-hmm. okay? So as we see, we're really starting to watch Israel become what we would think of as a, as a nation, right? Of, of divisions and how people are, are governed. Um, does anybody else struggle with delegating? task anybody else okay um this spoke to me in a lot of ways because i'm terrible at it i'm i'm not good at asking for help i'm not saying one way um it's i have a really hard time and i like and i I mean i make big to-do lists and i'm like i can do all of these things i don't i can do all of these things and i quickly realize that i can't that i can't take all of it on 
Um, and then, of course, I get frustrated, and I'm like, why am I not able to do all of this? But I think what this story points out to me is that we're not meant to do it alone. Like, we're supposed to ask for help. Um, that delegation when you need that help so that you don't burn yourself out is important. Um, and for his father-in-law to recognize that is, and to speak that into Moses, I think is a divine thing um, that he recognizes. Like, son, you're, you're taking on too much. And it's not just about you, but it's also about the people that you're serving because you're not able to serve them to the best capacity because you're trying to do too much. Um, I think that's just a reminder in our own lives of we think that we're doing the best when we're taking it all on, but maybe we're not serving people as well as we think we are when we're trying to do too much. Um, so. Yep. We don't even have the Ten Commandments yet, by the way. Mm-hmm. There is no written standard. There are no laws. There's nothing, um, there's nothing that they can look and go, here's the scorecard for your dispute. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's my um, here's my valuation of it. Um, you would assume or infer that justice uh, and um, uh, justice and righteousness are kind of the guiding principles for for these people at the time. What's the uh, what's the most just thing? What's the right thing? Uh, maybe there are historical standards for uh, you did this and this is what's happened, but we don't have that we don't have that recorded, and so. It's, uh, I, I think it speaks to the, the working of God in this massive group of people, too, that all of these, all of these men were chosen uh, to administer justice, and yet there was nothing that they had to, like, rely on necessarily. So, I mean, God's still working in the midst yeah. of, uh, in the midst of, or in the absence of, um, uh, you know, some of the information that we're about to get in chapter 19. Yeah. So as we wrap up, wrap up the first half, what is um, a story or an image or something, those of you that have been, or even from today, that you think you will remember as we go on to the second half of Exodus? I'm really struck just by verse 24. Moses, Moses listened to his father-in-law mm-hmm. and did everything he said. Just that, you know, Moses growing as a leader is part of the beauty of like, the beauty of this not just Israel, but how God's shaping him to lead and then develop other leaders. And so um, I just really appreciate you guys bringing that out and kind of seeing that perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, I think the image of Aaron and her holding up Moses' hands (coughs) just kind of captivating to me Mm -hmm. when God tells me to do something. I can be capable so far, but the value of doing it in community and with other people who not only can hold up my hands, but see when they need to be held up, yeah. um, and that I would feel comfortable having those people on either side, I think is super important. Absolutely. The fact that uh, every miraculous thing that happened that should have or did instill faith was soon forgotten, mm-hmm. and then it just started grumbling again, and view of all that God had done, they still floundered and needed to be reminded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that wasn't generations ago. Yeah. That was like yeah. yesterday. <laughs> a few months ago. It was a month ago. I feel like that justifies Moses' response when he's like, quiet! I'm done with you people! <laughs>
I think one of the things that has stood out to me as I've been reading through this this time is um, the, the definition of freedom. And so Exodus is a book about freedom. Um, but I think what this, this section that we've been talking about and will continue to talk about throughout the rest of the book is defining what freedom is. So for us, freedom is we get to do what we want to do. But God is showing them over and over again, freedom is not now you're in control. Freedom is God is in control. Mm-hmm. Um, freedom is being able to rest in what God will do for you. Um, and that is a tough thing for me because I want the control and I want things to be my way and on my timeline and exactly how I want it done Uh, and so this has been a good reminder of what true freedom actually is along those lines that's what I was kind of thinking too is how Moses went into this thing not real willing but he did it and not seeing well clearly what the outcome was going Mm -hmm. to be I mean he's taking on a huge task and it's, and it, it just is seems insurmountable every every single time, yeah. and it just seems like, but he still is there doing it, yeah. and that that's not me at all. I want to know it's a good outcome, and I want to be yeah. able to you know picture that outcome mm-hmm. before I oh sorry before I try something. We'll show this at the beginning of next week uh, as well, but uh, we'll get a little preview into uh, what's what's coming. Is this okay? Yes. The book of Exodus. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant, they will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. Now the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, And so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. And Moses goes up as their representative, and God opens with the basic terms of the covenant, the famous Ten Commandments. These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how the Israelites and God are going to relate to each other. And then after this come another collection of commands which fill out the first ten in more detail. There are laws about Israel's worship, about social justice, how they are to live together, all shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that's different from the other nations. So Moses writes down all of these laws, and he brings them down to the people who, again, eagerly agree to enter into this covenant with God. And once they do so, God takes the relationship forward another step. He tells Moses that he wants his holy and divine and good presence to come and dwell right in the midst of Israel which develops another aspect of God's covenant promises. So remember, after humanity's rebellion in the garden, it was access to God's presence that was lost. But now it's through the family of Abraham that God's presence is becoming once again accessible through this covenant relationship. And first with Israel, 
and then somehow, one day to all nations. So what follows are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about this sacred tent called the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar, and then in the center there's a tent that has an outer room and then an inner room. And then inside the inner room, which is called the most holy space, is a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there's angelic creatures over the top of it. It's the hot spot of God's presence. Now there's lots of detail in these chapters, and it's important to know that every piece has some kind of symbolic value. All of the flowers, the angels, the gold, and the jewels, it all echoes back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans live together in intimacy. And so the tabernacle is like a portable Eden, so to speak. It's the place where God and Israel can live together in peace, at least in theory, because right here something goes really, really wrong. Israel breaks the covenant. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle, down below at the camp, the Israelites, they're losing patience. And so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf idol so they can worship it as the God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now God's presence, it's right there on top of the mountain. They can see it. But here they are below, breaking the first two commands of the covenant they just agreed to. No other gods and no idols. Now what follows is really important. God knows what's happening down below. And so he first invites Moses into his own anger and pain. And he tells Moses what he wants to do, just to wipe Israel out. But Moses intercedes by appealing to God's character. He says, first of all, destroying Israel would be going back on your covenant promises to Abraham. And then Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. What would they think if they see you destroying your own people? And so God accepts Moses' intercession, and he relents. And while he does bring his judgment on those who instigated the idolatry, he forgives the nation as a whole and promises to renew his covenant. And it's right here, at this point in the story, that God, for the first time, describes his own character to Moses. He says, the Lord is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. So we have this tension. God is full of mercy, but also he must deal with evil if he claims to be good. And above all, God is faithful to his promises, even though it means, he knows, he's committing himself to a people who are utterly faithless. And so after renewing the covenant with Israel, God commissions Moses to go ahead and build the tabernacle. And once again, we get five long chapters describing in detail the construction of the tabernacle. And it all comes together in the final chapter, where the tabernacle's finished. God's glorious divine presence comes and hovers over the tent, and our hopes are high. And so Moses, he goes right up to enter into the tent, and he can't. He actually can't go in, and that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but not really if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realize. So the book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil, threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now, as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question, as the book closes, is how is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and his goodness and his presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about, but for now, that's the book of Exodus. Oh, oh that was concise. Yep.
right. So we'll jump into that next week. Um, hope to see you all then. Up to this point, we've kind of been exploring uh, who is God. Um, and from here on out, that will continue to be a question, uh, but we'll also add the question of, um, and who are God's people? What are God's people called to? What kind of people will we be? Um, so hope you'll join us again next week to dive into that some more. Is that the Bible? Thanks.